Well, we are looking still in verse 1, but partially in verse 2. And tonight we're going to be talking about what is a saint. Paul opens up his letter and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We looked at Paul that he was really steeped in, legal, in the law of Moses. And he had an encounter with Jesus and Jesus taught him the gospel of grace. Sent Paul on a mission as an apostle. And an apostle is someone on a mission with a message. So we looked at the message of Paul was the gospel of grace, which is the fullness of what Christ has done for us at the cross, which is Christ in us. We looked at his mission, which was to go into Gentile cities and to start grace-based churches so that the churches would then educate people about the gospel of grace uh, within the cities of the Roman Empire. And it was the will of God for Paul to do this. It was God's will that Paul go into these cities on a mission with the message of the good news of grace, he got this gospel that he taught from Jesus. So it was the gospel of grace that Jesus, the ascended Jesus, only discipled one person. That one person was Paul, and he instructed Paul, educated Paul about the good news of God's grace, and then Paul went into the cities and started grace-based churches. That's why if we want to understand grace, we go to Romans, which Paul wrote, we go to Galatians, which Paul wrote. We go to Ephesians, which Paul wrote. We go to Philippians. He wrote the majority of the New Testament. The reason he had that kind of knowledge is he was discipled by Jesus. So he wrote, educated people about the gospel of grace. So when Paul wrote his letters, he writes here, to the saints in Ephesus. Let's look at this word saint. What does it mean? How does it relate to us? It says the Greek word for saint is hagios. It just means holy one. So some translations will say to the holy ones in Ephesus, to God's people in Ephesus. But, but the word here is hagios, which means holy ones. Believers are called saints over 50 times after the cross of Jesus. Believers are called saints five times in Ephesians. And believers are called sinners saved by grace zero times in the Bible. Typically, what I was taught was I was a sinner saved by grace. Truth, I was a sinner. Truth, I was saved by grace. But because I have been saved by grace, you and I have new identities. Our identities now is that of a saint. That's why Paul never, ever opens a letter to the sinner saved by grace in Ephesus or to the sinner saved by grace in Philippi or to the sinner saved by grace in Corinth. He always writes to them based upon their identity, which is what Christ did for them. Christ made them holy. So about 1990, I stopped referring to myself as a sinner saved by grace because it wasn't a biblical identity. My identity in Christ and through what Christ has done for me on the cross, as well as you too, is our identity is that of saints or holy ones. That's who we are. That's our identity. We're, we're the holy ones of God. The last verse of the Bible Revelation 22:21 21 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all the saints. Notice it doesn't say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all the sinners saved by grace. If that's how God wanted us to identify himself, then that would have been what the last verse of Scripture says. But nowhere in the Bible is a believer in Christ ever called a sinner saved by grace. We were sinners. We were saved by grace. And now we're saints. We're holy ones in the sight of God. That's who we are. The image we have of ourselves will control how we live. 
however I view myself, down deep within me, whatever the image of, that I have of me will be how I live. One of the illustrations that I like that I learned from Bob George when I read his book, Classic Christianity, was he talks about a caterpillar and a butterfly. And a caterpillar goes through this metamorphosis, the cocoon, and becomes a butterfly. So that when you and I see the butterfly, we don't say there's a converted caterpillar. We don't refer to the butterfly based on its old identity. We refer to the butterfly based upon its new identity. So when God sees you and me, he doesn't see us based upon our identity in Adam, sinner. He sees us based upon our identity in Christ, saint. He doesn't call us, we're not converted sinners. We're saints. Now, I want us to take a look at, well, how does that even happen? It happened that you and I, who were born sinners, unholy, unrighteous, dead in Adam, end up with this label or this title or this identity. How do we, how is it that, that we now are called, why would Paul even call those in Ephesus saints? Because we get over into Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, and he's, he's saying, hey, you guys are behaving like this. That's the old way of living. Behave in this new way. He's saying, listen, your old behavior doesn't match your new identity. Let your new identity produce a new set of behaviors. But he, he educates people before he ever gets to the take off and to put on way of living. He educates people on their identity first. So let's take a look at what is a saint? How do we even get that title, the word saint? So number one, a saint stands pure before God. So a saint is a person whose sins have been forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Christ Jesus through faith in Christ Jesus, enabling that person to stand pure, righteous, or clean, or holy before God. So how does a person become holy, pure, clean, a saint, a holy one in the eyes of the God? That's, that's the question. We move back into the Jewish scriptures and we find out in Psalm 24, 3 through 4. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Or who, who shall enter into the presence of God? He who has, a, who has clean hands and a pure heart. Somebody who's never sinned externally with their hands and never sinned at their hearts. That disqualifies everybody. Right there. Who can ascend? Ascend. The gospel of grace is Jesus descending to us. Every other religion in the world is people trying to ascend to God. Clean heart, clean hands, pure heart. Whatever religion it is. Judaism was the same way. How can I enter into the presence of God? He who has clean hands, never sinned externally. And he who has a pure heart, never sinned internally. He who has, a, who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Again, that disqualifies us. We, we've done all the things we shouldn't do that are required to enter into the presence of God. Who can say in Proverbs 20, verse 9, I have kept my heart pure. I am cleansed from my sin. There's no one who can say that. Nobody can say that I'm pure without sin, that my heart is pure and that my heart is, is cleansed from sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 defines the human heart apart from Christ. 
the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can even understand the human heart? Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That the only people who will see God or go into the presence of God, have relationship with God, are people who have a pure heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19 through 20, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And the Pharisees were trying to achieve a pure standing before God by external behavior. That's why Jesus says, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Here's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were trying to become pure before God through external activity. They thought their prayer life made them pure and holy before God. The list is given in Luke chapter 19. Remember when the, the sinner stands out on the road, he won't even come close to the temple and the Pharisee goes right into the temple and he looks up to God and he says, God, I thank you. I'm not like that sinner out there. I pray, I fast, I give. All these external religious things, religious activity. He thought this religious activity and his attempts at morality made him pure and clean. Even these things of, hey, you know, they were always washing their hands, just trying to get clean before God. And Jesus said, hey, you can do, any, you can do all these things externally, but external activity doesn't cleanse the heart. That's why Jesus would say things like, hey, if it's your right eye that's bad, pluck out your right eye. If it's your right hand that's bad, cut off your right hand. And what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, he's really being sarcastic there, that the problem isn't your right eye. It's not that your right eye is bad and your left eye is good or your right hand's good and your left hand's bad. He's trying to let them know it's the heart. It's not your right hand. He says, if you really think being holy and pure before God is based upon what you do with your hands, and if you're afraid that your hands may steal something, then in order to be pure before God, why don't you just cut off your hands so that you never steal anything? He's taking them to the logical conclusion of their false belief of how to be righteous. He's saying, listen, if, if you're afraid you'll see something and covet, breaking commandment number 10, you see it, you want it, coveting in the heart, then why don't you just pluck out the, the, the bad eye. Again, he's being sarcastic to them. He's taking them to their logical conclusion of a false standard of how to become righteous. The heart is what's impure. The heart is dirty. The heart is... The book of Hebrews tells us how people with unclean hearts become people with clean hearts so that God calls us saints, holy ones, pure ones, clean ones. So let's read Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. The author of Hebrews opens up with this. On many past occasions and in different ways, he's talking about the Jewish scriptures here. God spoke to our fathers. He's, he's writing to Jewish people in Hebrews. So he's, he's talking about the Jewish people in, the, in, in Jewish scriptures. God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, all, all the different prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom God appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son, who is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by his powerful word. And after he, the son, had provided purification for sins, 
He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It tells us this. I can't purify my heart. If I can purify my heart and make myself holy, then I don't need the blood of Jesus. If I could do that, then Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. If there's any way I can make myself holy. Now, he's called the Son here, and what the author of Hebrew does, Hebrews does, in Scripture, Jesus is called the Son of God and the Son of Man. So in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the Son of God. And in Hebrews chapter 2, he says Jesus is the Son of Man. And the reason he does that is the word son of means having the very nature of. Remember, John and James were called sons of thunder. means their nature was, was thunderous. Remember, Barnabas was called son of encouragement because he took Paul around and tried to encourage Paul. That means the very nature of Barnabas was, was that of an encourager. So son of God means Jesus had the nature of God, meaning he was 100% God and the writer of Hebrews defends that in Hebrews 1. He's called the Son of Man in Hebrews 2, and the writer of Hebrews says he's 100% man. So Jesus is both 100% God, a Son of God, and he's 100% man, a Son of Man, because Jesus is going to be a mediator of a new covenant. The new covenant is where Jesus fully represents God's justice at the cross, and he fully represents our sinfulness at the cross. And it's where he brings us into relationship with God. A mediator always fully represents both sides. So if I'm a mediator and there's somebody on this side and somebody on this side and they're not in agreement, they're at odds with one another, the role of the mediator is to 100% represent the person on his right, 100% represent the person on his left for the purpose of reconciliation. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He fully represents God as God. He fully represents man as man. At the cross, he takes our sin and the justice of God, and then he brings us into relationship with God through what he's done for us on the cross. That's the idea of the Son here. The rest of the book of Hebrews is explaining Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. So Hebrews 1, through 1, 1 through 4 is the summary of all of the rest of the book. And the rest of the book explains the summary. And we've already looked at 1 and 2. Let's look a little bit more at, at Hebrews 2, 9. But we see Jesus, who, has made, who was made a little lower than the angels. That's 100% man. He's already talked about him being 100% God in Hebrews 1. A little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everybody. Grace is Jesus dying my death. Grace is Jesus dying your death because we are impure. We are unholy. We are sinners, and the penalty for sin is death. And so Jesus steps in, and he dies our death. He takes everything impure about us on the cross. Hebrews 2.11 says, For both the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's saying here that Jesus is 100% man. Jesus, I don't refer to Jesus as my brother. He was human. He came and he lived as a human being and he died on the cross. But he's, he, and now he's exalted. He's not my brother anymore. He's the exalted son. He's the exalted God. He's, he calls me friend. 
You know, we're still in that friendship. But a lot of people say, oh, yeah, Jesus is my brother. Well, we're missing the context of what the author of Hebrews is saying here. He's saying he was fully human. He was a, he was 100 percent human, crowned a little lower than the angels. And he represented us at the cross. And now he's exalted. He's exalted now. And we're in. He's still. But he calls us friend. Meaning Jesus wasn't ashamed to identify with the human race. That's beautiful. That the God that created all is not ashamed to identify with the human race. He, he's not ashamed to die for our sins. He's not ashamed. He doesn't push us away because of our sin. He says, I'm going to go to the cross for you. I love you. I'm, I'm full of grace to you. He's, he's not ashamed of us as humans. And then we move on to this explanation of becoming holy in Hebrews. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that have come, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made by hands and is not of this creation. He did not enter by the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Here's what he's talking about. When the Old Covenant began or the Old Testament began, which was at Exodus chapter 19, the people of Israel had come out of Egypt And God was organizing this nation. He organized them governmentally. He organized them spiritually. He's organizing this nation. God is holy and God is pure. So therefore, God could not just directly come to these people because it would it would kill people. I mean, he's holy. We're not. It's like I can't touch electricity. It'll kill me. It's more powerful. And so he created the tabernacle remember the tent and he created the the altar where the animals were sacrificed he created the holy place then the most holy place and when the animals blood was sacrificed a priest would go into the holy place and then once a year he would go into the most holy place to atone for the sins of the people the architect the architecture for the most holy place and the, the tabernacle ultimately becoming the temple is in from Hebrews 19 on. God comes and he gives Moses the exact pattern of how to build this tabernacle, of how to build this, this temple. Ultimately, he gives David the plans for building the temple. It's a replica of the tabernacle, or the tent structure. What we learn in Hebrews is that what the writer says is what this, this pattern that was on earth, this tabernacle that was on earth, this temple that was on earth, is the exact replica of heaven. That the real most holy place is the presence of God in heaven, not the temple in Jerusalem. That's not the real presence of God. That the real most holy place is, is heaven itself. So the priest would take the blood of these animals. You can read all about it in Leviticus because it gives all the sacrifices and all the blood sacrifices that need to be done. Exodus, Leviticus, would bring the blood then into the most holy, the holy place and then once a year into the most holy place. They did this routinely, except for going into the most holy place. They only did that once a year. But these sacrifices were constantly going on. It's like shift work. If you've ever worked shift work, somebody's always on shift. There's never a time when somebody's not on shift. Firemen work shift work, whether it's Christmas or Easter or New Year's. It doesn't matter. Somebody's always on shift. There's never a time when somebody can rest. The the work's always being done. Something's always needing to be done. And so these priests were constantly sacrificing for sins every single day. So they stood up all the time. 
They were always on their feet because there was always another person bringing another animal needing to be sacrificed. So the priest could never sit down because his work was never done. That's why in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, we read it just a second ago, that after he provided purifications for sins, he sat down. So the writer makes a contrast in this whole book that the priest of the Old Testament never sat down, but once Jesus did his work, he sat down. And we relate to God based upon what Jesus did. If Jesus is done, we're done. So when people start talking about the finished work of Christ, this is what they're talking about. It's done. Your sins have been purified. You have been made clean. You have been made holy because of the blood of Christ. It's finished. It's done. It's forever. It's final. And it's full. You're now a holy one before God. And the rest of the book explains how that happened. So, moving back up into this verse a little bit, Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. It says, Jesus did not enter the most holy place, by the blood of goats and calves. Jesus entered the most holy place once for all by his blood, thus securing eternal redemption. The idea is here, Jesus took his blood into heaven itself. And he said, this is my blood shed for Brad. This is my blood shed for Thomas. This is my blood shed for Daniel. This is my blood shed Because I'm not ashamed to call them brothers. I'm not ashamed to die on the cross for them. I'm not ashamed to shed my blood for them. And this is my blood shed for Jerry. To heaven itself, the very presence of God, this is my blood shed for Alex. This is the idea of the, the Hebrew writer, to secure eternal redemption. The redemption that the priest secured was never eternal. It was only temporal. It only lasted to the next sin somebody committed. Temporal redemption. And then when they sinned, they were out of fellowship and they needed to get forgiven again. It was never eternal. So when Jesus secured eternal forgiveness, eternal righteousness, eternal holiness through his blood, he secured it for you and for me, not for himself. He didn't need it. So he secured your eternal forgiveness through his payment of our sins on the cross. He secured your eternal righteousness. He secured your eternal Holiness. That's why he could say, Paul could write to the Corinthians, to the saints in Corinth. What? These guys are sinning. And Paul calls them saints. Why? Because their sainthood was secured when they placed their faith in Christ and can't be lost through their behavior. So he's reminding them that you are now a butterfly and you're living like a caterpillar. I just want to remind you who you are. That's why he writes as he does. So he goes on to say, For if the blood of bulls and goats, which they did for the nation of Israel, Judaism. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so their bodies are clean, which was temporal. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, purify our consciences from works of death? so that we may serve or know or be in relationship with the living God. See how deep the blood of Christ goes here? To cleanse the conscience. And the conscience is where the guilt is. And the conscience is where the shame is. And the conscience is where, boy, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I wish I would have chosen differently. Internal, he secures for us internal and eternal holiness. 
And the blood of bulls and goats in Judaism was always temporal and external, but the blood of Christ is eternal and internal. Forever, fully made righteous, fully forgiven, fully in fellowship with God, fully pure, so that we may enjoy a relationship with God. For Christ did not enter a man-made copy of the true sanctuary like the priests did in Judaism in Jerusalem. Christ did not enter a man-made copy of the true sanctuary. He entered heaven itself now to appear on our behalf in the presence of God. Isn't that something that Jesus, after he died, entered the presence of God on your behalf and on my behalf because he's not ashamed of us, because he loves us. And he goes into heaven itself and he says, this is my blood shed for Marvin and Daryl. That's unbelievable. This is my blood that makes you pure and that makes them clean and makes them holy and makes them righteous and secures their forgiveness. They don't have to do it because I just did it for them. It's an amazing thought. This is what Jesus was doing for us. Nor did Jesus enter heaven to offer himself again and again. Think about it. If we needed to ask for forgiveness every time we sin, then according to this verse, Jesus is going to need to die every time. Because every time a sin needed to be forgiven, another animal needed to be sacrificed. Jesus could never sit down if he was constantly forgiving us. Oh, I'm out of fellowship with God. Jesus, please forgive me. Golly, I, he thought his work was done. He's, he's by the Father. You know, Brad's asking me for forgiveness. Okay. All right, Brad, I forgive you. And then he sits back down. What I've got to realize is Jesus' work is done. He's not going to stand up and say, Brad, you're forgiven, because on the cross he's already said, Brad, you're forgiven. And he sat down, and it's finished, and it's full, and it's forever, and it's eternal, because he secured eternal redemption. The priests could never sit down, never sit down. They were constantly forgiving sin. And so the contrast here, beautiful contrast, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. Why? Because the work was complete. And he was sitting down as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. And what he's saying is, if there's more forgiveness that needs to be given, Christ is going to continue to have to die for sins. Over and over and over and over. It's, it's final, it's full, it's forever, it's finished, and it's for everybody. And by faith, we receive this eternal redemption. But now Jesus has appeared once for all, once for everybody at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Forgiveness is done. God is not forgiving anybody anymore. It's finished. It's final. It's full. It's forever. It's secured. He's now giving this forgiveness that's already been paid for to those who acknowledge their need. I confess my sin. I acknowledge my need for Christ I place my, or for forgiveness. I place my faith in Christ and we receive the forgiveness of sins. And we only do that one time. We're forgiven. Now I can move on to enjoy a relationship with God. I can leave behind the guilt and the shame that is deep in the conscience. I, can, can walk in this understanding that we're forgiven. All right, Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. For the law is only a shadow of the good things to come, not the reality themselves. 
And the law can never, by the same sacrifices offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would not the offerings have ceased? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilt for their sins. Here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. If the old covenant way of relating to God was good enough, then people would have been relieved from their guilt for eternity. But because sin brings guilt, they continued to have to get forgiveness for sin so they could be relieved from their guilt. And it was constant. It was over and over. The way I explain the difference between the Old and New Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Testament, not, not talking about books of the Bible, but the blood of Christ, that a new way of relating to God compared to the old way of relating to God under the blood of animals, is that what if our clothes were always washed? I mean, they were just always washed and always folded, but they're not. Every day, like I'll go home, I got these clothes dirty today, I'll go home, put them in the dirty clothes, and they'll get washed, and then I'll wear them again and they'll get dirty. And they'll need to be washed again. That's life under the old covenant. We kind of live with that old covenant mentality. Oh, gosh, I've sinned. God, please forgive me. I'm dirty. I'm unclean before you now. And I'm unrighteous and I'm unholy and I'm not pure before you. And I confess my sin so I can now be pure before you. We're living with an old covenant mentality, though we're living in a new covenant reality. And God wants us to move into the new covenant reality and have that mentality of that reality. That's just too much there, I know, but... That's, that's what he wants, but we're living in, with an old covenant mentality. I got to get forgiven. I got to get forgiven. I got to stay clean. I got to stay pure. I got to stay in fellowship. That's what they were doing in the old covenant. And they can never rest, and they can never enjoy their relationship with God. But in the new covenant, the clothes are always washed. It's the same with dishes. We eat, the dishes are clean. We get them, we drink out of them, we eat out of them. Now they're dirty. We put them in the dishwasher. They get clean until we use them again. Then they get dirty and we, keep, we wash them again. That's, that's how we kind of live our lives with God. I'm clean today, but dirty tomorrow. Clean today, but dirty tomorrow. God, please forgive me so I can be clean before you. It's, it's again, we're living with that old covenant mentality, which I did for several years until I began, the Lord enabled me to see the reality of the new covenant. Just an amazing work of Christ for us. It says, instead, the sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Every time they sacrificed it was an animal, it was a reminder that they were guilty. Every time an animal was sacrificed and the blood was spilled and was taken into the, most, the holy place, it was a reminder that they were guilty. Every time that I say, God, forgive me, I'm reminding myself that I'm guilty even though I'm not guilty. Makes sense? Because we've been justified. Means means God has said you're not guilty. We've been declared righteous. We've been declared holy. We've been declared pure before God because of Christ. How much of my guilt did Jesus take on the cross? 100%. And how much of his righteousness or his innocence did he give you and I when we placed our faith in him? 100%. We are not guilty because Jesus took our guilt. But every time I say, God, forgive me, God, forgive me, I'm, I'm telling myself I'm guilty. I'm telling myself that the work of Christ was not full and the work of Christ was not final and the work of Christ was not finished and the work of Christ was not forever. And I've got to add some kind of work to secure what he's already secured. So rather than spending my time trying to erase this guilt, 
I remember that, hold on, I'm not guilty, and God remembers my sins no more because they were counted against Christ. So he moves on to say, Instead, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, talking to God. But a body you prepared for me, a human body that you prepared for me, in burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you took no delight. God took no delight when an animal was sacrificed. Took no delight when a lamb was sacrificed. He took no delight when a bull was sacrificed. He took no delight in any of that. We don't take delight in that. We don't like that. And God didn't like it either. It was just a picture to show us the seriousness of sin the reality of sin, the death of sin, and we got to see it in a reality of the animal sacrifices. But God didn't delight in it. Then I said, being Jesus, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, that's Jewish scriptures. Isaiah 53, be one of the places. I have come to do your will, O God. In the passage above, he says, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor did you delight in although they are offered according to the law. Then he adds, this is he being Jesus, here I am, I have come to do your will. And he's going to tell us exactly what the will of God was for Jesus. He takes away the first, that's the first testament, that's the Old Testament instituted in Exodus after 19 with the blood of the animals written in the book of the law or the Old Covenant. He takes away the first testament or covenant to establish the second testament or covenant. Now, the first testament or covenant was everything was temporal. It was like our clothes are temporarily clean till we get them dirty again. The dishes we use are temporarily clean till we get them dirty again and they need to be washed. Well, the sins of people under the old covenant, they were temporarily cleansed. They were temporarily purified. They were temporarily forgiven until they stained themselves with their next sin. That's the old way to relate to God, which is how most believers relate to God today. The same way back then, we're just not sacrificing animals. We're just saying, hey, God, forgive me. Rather than, hey, God, thank you that I am forgiven. Thank you that I am righteous. Thank you that I am not guilty. Thank you that I am holy and pure, one whom you call a saint. That's who I am. That's who you are at your core. You're not the sin that you struggle with. You're not the sin that you hate. You're not the guilt that is associated with past sins in your life. You are who Christ identifies as as a saint because of what he's done for you. Forgiven, righteous, holy, pure, and clean. That's the New Testament. We tend to think New Testament is a collection of books starting in Matthew 1 going to Revelation. That's not the New Testament. The New Testament starts with the blood of Christ in Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus said, This is my blood given for the New Testament. So up until Jesus died on the cross, we're under the Old Testament. Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all the way through 26. They're still sacrificing animals until Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes upon the, the sins of the world upon himself. And a new covenant is given to the human race. That is not a collection of books. That's how we think. It's how God relates to us through what Christ did for us on the cross. And by that will, by the new covenant, by the blood of Christ, by the New Testament, it says here, we have been sanctified, purified, made holy and clean through the sacrifice 
of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When God declared you forgiven, he declared you forgiven. I don't have to ask for it. He never asked me to ask for it. He asked me to receive it. And we say, thank you. I receive it by faith. Not only forgiven is in this word sanctified, but I've been cleansed as if I've never sinned. I'm, Jesus hung on the cross as he was the guilty one. Now I stand before God as if I'm the innocent one. It's grace. It's, it's Jesus dying on the cross for us. It's his blood that makes me holy. It's his blood that forgives my sin. It's his blood that makes me righteous. It's called grace, and faith is receiving what his blood has done for us. It says here, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Jesus took every sin that everybody's ever committed, and it was nailed to the cross. One time for all people. Having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. He then sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, that's his sacrifice, his blood on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. When God sees you, he sees you as perfect before him. Remember in the old covenant that they had to find a lamb that had no imperfections. Jesus is that lamb of the New Testament. He had no imperfections. He had no sins. But he took all of our sins upon himself. He took all of our imperfections upon himself. He took all of our impurities upon himself. And he's given us his perfection, his righteousness, his holiness, his purity, so that you and I stand before God perfect, forgiven, clean, pure, holy, righteous. And for how long? Eternally, because it's eternal redemption. Not until I sin again. It's not that when I sin, I become imperfect before God. A butterfly can go hang out with the caterpillars the next day, but he's still a butterfly. Because he hangs out with the caterpillars doesn't mean he's suddenly a caterpillar again. No, he's a butterfly. Somebody just needs to remind him who he is. That's what Paul does. To the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Philippi, to the saints. And I'm reminding you who you are. You're not a sinner saved by grace. You're a saint. You're a holy one. You're a forgiven one. You're a pure one. You're a clean one. No matter what. Because of the blood of Christ. Because of what he's done. Notice there's a contrast between the priest of the old covenant and the priest of the new covenant. And the priest of the old covenant could never sit down because everything was temporal and nothing was finished. But the priest of the New Testament, the priest of the new covenant has sat down. That's the contrast because his work is done. And we relate to God not based upon our works, but upon his work. And if he's sit, sitting down, then I'm going to sit down. And by sitting down, I, symbolically, what I'm saying is I'm forgiven. I'm not going to try to earn forgiven, forgiveness, God. I'm not going to ever ask you to forgive me again. I'm not going to try to earn righteousness. You and I, we're going to see it in Ephesians. We've been seated with Christ in heaven, Ephesians 1. You have been seated with Christ in heaven, which means his work is finished. If you were not pure, he could not sit you in heaven. If you were not forgiven, he could not sit you in heaven. If you were not clean, he could not sit us in heaven. You have been seated with Christ 
in the heavenlies. That's who you are because of what Christ has done. There's nothing else for us to do. Christ has done it all. Hebrews 13, 9 through 11. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Grace is everything he's just talked about in Ephesians. It's what you and I have been learning about now. When a person hears their sins are forgiven, they are strengthened. When a person hears they are pure and holy and clean and righteous before God, there's a strengthening that happens within the heart. Now, the legalist will come along and say this. All that grace stuff will weaken people. You can't teach that grace theology because it'll weaken people so much that they'll go sin all the more. Well, that tells me one thing about that person making that comment. They do not understand the Bible because they're saying exactly the opposite of what God just said. They're saying grace weakens people, and we just read in here that grace strengthens people. We read in Titus chapter 2 that grace teaches us to say no to sin, and they're saying, wow, if you teach people about grace, then people are going to start saying yes to sin. Well, that's not what God says. They're on a different page with God. That's how you always know, typically, whether the person who's making that comment really understands Scripture, and typically they present themselves as one who understands Scripture. That's why they're making the comment. But they've just proved that they don't understand Scripture because they're in disagreement with Scripture. So we find out here, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods of no value to those devoted to them. It's talking about the Old Covenant of Law. We weren't under the Old Covenant. Any teaching that says, that demands your devotion, any teaching that demands your discipline, any teaching that demands your commitment, any discipline that demands your work in order to be forgiven, in order to be holy, in order to be righteous, is not the teaching of grace. If my discipline is demanded, then I'm, I'm saying Jesus' work wasn't enough. So I got to add to it by my discipline, and by adding to it, I just diluted it. My commitment, if my commitment, and this is, I would go to seminars, and I would go to conferences, And I would hear these people talking, and they're trying to inspire people to love Jesus more. And I would hear things like, hey, if if you're not committed to get up 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes before you go about your day, if you're not committed enough to get up and pray, then you're not a good Christian. If you're not disciplined enough to have a quiet time, if if you don't confess your sins consistently, all the things I needed to be devoted to. But nobody ever taught me this. Nobody ever taught me this. So the first time I heard grace, grace was the strange teaching. That's strange. And that when people hear me share this and teach this, people, that's strange. Never heard that before. That's odd. That can't be right. It's strange. It's strange because grace at some point in history stopped being the main thing. And human effort and human work and human devotion and human discipline, Phariseeism took over Christianity. And it becomes about our devotion, our commitment, and our, and no longer about Jesus. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do is get people focused on what Christ did for them and to rest, to relax in grace and what Christ did for us at the cross. So he says, don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods or whatever you want to put in the blank there. 
which of no value to, to those devoted to them. We, believers in Christ, have an altar from which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. This book is just full of Judaism. You probably grew up in churches that had an altar down at the front, right? And there was just something about, boy, if we could get a revival and we could get people just coming down to the altar and confessing their sins and, and, and we could get revival going on if we could get them to this altar and people would come down and we call it a revival. But nobody ever taught them about the altar, which he's talking about the cross. That's the altar. And once I begin relating to God from the altar, remember, that's where the animals were sacrificed in Judaism, the altar. And he's comparing that to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. People will no longer have to hit the altars in a church to be right with God because they understand it's the altar that makes them right with God. It's not my crying. It's not my emotions. It's not my pleading with God to forgive me at the altar. That's a worthless altar. It has no value. And they keep going back and they keep going back. We've got to have another revival. The greatest revival in the human heart is when somebody understands the grace of God. Because it strengthens the heart. And you and I eat at the altar of the cross. Remember when Jesus introduced the new covenant? Matthew chapter 26, he said, This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Eat of, eat of my body and drink of my blood. He's saying, eat and drink of the altar. That's what he's saying. Eat and drink of what I'm doing for you. Whatever we eat and drink is what we become. Whatever I eat affects me. Whatever I drink affects me. We are what we, we've heard. it. You are what you eat. You are what you drink. And Jesus is saying, eat and drink of the new covenant. And when we do, it strengthens us. It nourishes us. It builds us up. It revives us. Because we're eating and drinking from this altar called the cross and the finished work of Christ, where he's done it all for us. So do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. We have an altar from which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Although the high priest brings the blood of the animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin, they were still doing that during this time. The bodies are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to sanctify the people by his own blood. You are sanctified. Sanctification is not a process. I always heard progressive sanctification, as if I somehow, over the course of time, could holify myself, could make myself holy over the course. I can't. If I can make myself holy over the course of time, I don't need the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ makes you and I holy. It sanctifies us. It makes us holy, makes us clean, makes us pure. That's how we relate to God, by His own blood. This is the message that Paul got. Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Who are you, Lord? I ask. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. The Lord replied. And he told Paul, but get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen from me and what I will show you, ongoing understanding of the gospel of grace that Paul was going to receive. I will rescue you from your own people, that's the Jews and the Gentiles, and I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance 
among those who are sanctified by faith in me. How is a person sanctified? How, it's the same Greek word as to the saints in Ephesus, by the way. It's the same Greek word. How, how are we sanctified? It's not progressive. It's immediate. When you place your faith in, in Jesus, Jesus himself says you're sanctified, you're holy, you're pure, you're clean, you're forgiven, you're righteous. I never heard this message. I was in conferences and small groups and discipleship guys and mentors and it was always more commitment, more devotion, and more discipline and more to do. And I just nobody ever. That's why I'm so passionate about that, because I don't want anybody living a life trying to get what God's given for free. And what we get for free totally changes our lives. Paul, when he was with the elders of the church in Ephesus, we read this last week, says, and I, I now commit to you, the elders of the church in Ephesus, to God, and I commit to you the word of his grace, which is everything we just talked about. The word of his grace, all that Christ did for us, which can build you up. When I began hearing this message, man, was I, be, I was built up from the inside. I was always taught, boy, if you want to build up, build yourself up, have a quiet time. If you want to build up, get yourself up early, out of bed and pray. That's how you build yourself up. And I was reading devotionals of people who didn't even understand the gospel. Day one, January 1st, here's this guy writing a devotional. And he doesn't even understand the gospel. I didn't know he didn't understand the gospel until I began to see the gospel. And I'm trying to build myself up through a daily devotion of a person who's writing daily devotions who doesn't even understand the gospel. A daily devotions never built me up. Just understand when you read them, that's not scripture. It's somebody's opinion. That's all it is. And they usually take one verse out of context and write something, whether it's the daily bread or whatever it is. I'm not saying it's not beneficial or helpful or even it's wrong for some of them. Some of them are not right. But when we get trained in the gospel, we will see that's not the right teaching of the gospel. That's strange. That's not correct. That's what Paul's trying to do here. So the gospel can build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Well, how are we sanctified? By faith. And those who are sanctified by faith, we receive an inheritance. If you were in the seniors class probably, I don't know, a month or so ago, I talked about a lady whose dad is the Duke of Duke, Duke University. The reason it was named Duke is because this man was a billionaire. He pretty much built the college, right? Well, she got all his money when Mr. Duke died. It was his only daughter. She got billions of dollars in an inheritance. Do you know how much work she did to get that inheritance? Nothing. She received the inheritance because of the blood that flowed through her veins. You and I get an inheritance that we didn't work for because of the blood that flowed from the cross. It's finished. It's full. It's final. It's forever. And it's yours. And you just say, I receive it by faith. Thank you so much. I live the rest of my life in appreciation for what you've done, not asking you to do for me what you've already done. It's an amazing gospel. Peter's trying to help James and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem understand this because they couldn't understand it. They were struggling to understand this, like many of us, you know, understand, uh, struggle with it. 
says, God made, this is Peter, God made no distinction between us, the Jews, and then the Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. It's the consistent message of Scripture. And somewhere, somebody came along and said, progressive sanctification. And like a parrot, somebody repeated it. And then like a parrot, somebody else repeated it. And progressive sanctification took hold within the Christian community, even though it's not a truth that's held in Scripture. It's not progressive. It's immediate. When you place your faith in Jesus, God says you're holy. And if you lived in Ephesus, Paul would say to you, to the saints in Ephesus. And if he wrote a, church to, a letter to us, to the saints at Grace Fellowship Church, to the holy ones. And he explains this in Ephesians chapter 1, which we'll look at that uh, coming up. And a saint is not only stands pure before God, but is set apart for the purpose of God. Paul, writing his letter to Timothy, says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me. We can get that now. The message that you and I are learning about tonight was the message that Jesus gave Paul. It's the message that people would look at Paul and they're like, this Paul guy's a little strange. This Paul guy's a little odd. This Paul guy's a little weird. His theology's a little messed up. And people would say, I'm I'm I'm, I'm a little ashamed of Paul. I I want these leaders over here to like me. I want to be accepted by these leaders in Jerusalem, these lawmen who are mixing law and grace all together. And he says, Timothy, there's a lot of people out there who are ashamed of me and they're ashamed of the gospel. We looked at that last week, Romans chapter 1, 16. He said, but you don't be ashamed of me. And now he's going to say why he didn't want Timothy to be ashamed of him when so many other people were ashamed of Paul. So do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Testimony, I'm telling you the truth of what Christ did for you and what Christ told me to teach, his prisoner. Instead, he said, Timothy, join me in suffering for the gospel of grace, which is what we've been talking about, by the power of God. Timothy, God has saved us and called us to a holy calling. Says, says Timothy, you've been set apart for something special. And I've been set apart by some, for something special. And he talks about this in Galatians chapter 1 when Paul says, I was set aside in my mother's womb to teach the gospel of grace. So he says, you have a holy calling on your life, Timothy, and I have a holy calling. We have been set aside for something special. And he says, this setting aside for something special is not because of our works. He says, it's not me. God didn't set me aside to teach grace because I'm somebody special. He set me aside to teach grace because he set me aside to teach grace. He could have chose anybody. But by his own purpose, God set me aside to teach grace, set us aside to teach grace, by his own purpose and by the grace he granted us in Christ Jesus before time eternal or before the beginning of time. And now God has revealed this grace through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has abolished death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. That was Paul's holy calling. Paul said, God set me aside to teach the gospel of grace, to preach the gospel of grace, to take the gospel of grace to a world in need of grace. And to start local churches all over the Roman Empire. And these little churches in this big empire would shine the light of Jesus into the lives 
of these people who need to hear about grace. They don't need to hear be more committed, be more devoted. That's what their religion demanded. They need to hear about the finished work of Christ. And nothing's changed. Not the same human heart that existed then exists now. People need to hear about the grace of God.